Hello and welcome to the Right for Life podcast. Today I am joined by my more regular co-host, welcoming her back from Australia. It's uh, Donna Sorensen. Oh, good eye. <laughs> right, right. I can't believe I said that to start with. Oh, hello. So, how was your holiday? <laughs> Absolutely amazing. I'll try not to go on about it, but it was amazing. Really amazing. Even though it was winter, it was. It's a good time actually to go down there. What was the best thing that you did on holiday? Um, found this little paradise beach, just just kind of through the jungly bit, not far from where we were staying, and um, there was a dead po- possum floating in a pool there. So finding a dead possum was the best thing you did on holiday. <laughs> that beach was the best thing. Um, the possum was just a bonus. It was it was the weirdest animal I've ever seen in my life. Well, it was dead. Yeah, but still, I, th- I mean, I don't know. Maybe it was slightly decomposed or something, but it was very weird looking. Uh, did it inspire you to write some kind of macabre poem in any way? No, actually, but I, well, I mean, this is completely random. I have written a poem about a decomposing animal in my first collection. What's the poem called? Um, Between the Bracken. It's, mm. uh, it, but it was, yeah, that was amazing. That was about a deer that was, yeah, anyway. See, that's I, nice, I, isn't it? I like between, it's a good title, Between the Bracken. His writing oh. is all, all about rhythm, Between the Bracken. It's got a lovely, a lovely Well, it starts and, and finishes with, on Between the Bracken as well. But this deer was just incredible that we stumbled across when we were hiking one day because the top part of the deer was completely there, like the head and antlers and everything. But as you got further down, there was, it was kind of more and more decayed until at the end there was nothing. Like there was, there was no back end to the deer at all. So this has been a fun start to the podcast. <laughs> oh, God. Sorry. No problem, but I'm glad you had a nice time. It sounds like you had a really wonderful time. I did. You know, Sydney's great. It's got a writer's walk um, along, all along the harbour, which I thought was a great idea. got, you know, plaques with famous Australian writers. It's, it's really nice. And loads of writers I didn't know about as well. So. And what do you do on a writer's walk? You just go around reading the plaques and going, oh. What? Uh, what what does what do you mean? What is it like poetry on or or? No, it, it just it's got like a little bio. It's got maybe some of their most famous titles and where when they were from and um, and yeah, what what they did. So it's like an elaborate author directory. Yeah, like the the blue um, what do you call it? The blue plaques in London and stuff like that for famous people. But this is just for writers, and it's all I mean, you know, in the most most traipsed part of Australia, I should imagine, along the harbour there. Indeed. Mm. So, today we're going to be talking about um, writing advice, which is what we are supposed to impart every now and again, I suppose. Although it's less about that these days, isn't it, the podcast, about imparting advice and more just talking about writing in general. However, as you very rightly said to me around ten minutes ago before we started recording, there does seem to be a lot of writing advice. It seems to be trendy to mm. uh, for... Um, well-known authors to be offering writing advice and um, Joyce Carol Oates um, very good author um, has, she she tweeted 10 writing tips um, over the course of 10 tweets and um, and we're going to talk about them today we're going to use the, those as the skeleton for the podcast on which we will um, place some fleshy thoughts of our own Um. So we're going to do that first, and if we have time, we'll also talk about an article called "The Four The Four Worst Pieces of Advice for Young Writers," which was on um, a website called Policy Mike. But we'll only do that if we uh, 
managed to get through Joyce Carol Oates' uh, uh, stuff first. Have you read any Joyce Carol Oates, by the way? <gasps> Should I not have asked you that? Ask me that. No, I haven't, actually. Well, what? I might have done, actually. I might have done. Um, I, yeah, I don't think I have. One uh, novel of hers, and it has a very... It has a... This is a very dark um, episode of the podcast, I can sense it, but the, the, the novel of hers that I read was called uh, Rape, A Love Story, which oh. I just think is the most beautiful, brutal title for anything. I absolutely loved that title, and it was kind of what made me... I'd read a bit of the blurb, but I didn't really know anything about the book when I started reading it, and I loved it. Really? One of my favourite books. I very oh. rarely say that, and very rarely talk about it, because I actually generally forget. It's quite a short book. Yeah. Um, the writing was just fantastic. Oh, okay. Well, then I'll have to look at that. I mean, she's written so much; it's unbelievable. Mm. I'll okay. get there. At the moment, I'm chomping my way through Wolf Hall. When I say chomping, actually, it's you know, I'm devouring it. Have you read it? Um, I read the first hundred pages of Wolf Hall and enjoyed them. And I, I cannot remember why, but um, for some reason, I didn't carry on. And um, it sat on my shelf. And I fully intend to read it um, uh, all the way through and um, bring up the bodies as well because it's, it's, I enjoyed it. I thought it was good. I can't put it down. It's great. Um, this thing about Joyce Carol Oates is, is quite interesting because I like the idea that it was some um, tweets that she sent out with the advice because, you know, just small, um, short and to the point and everything. But I thought it was interesting that I didn't actually see them because I do follow her on Twitter because I don't know I I find sometimes I get a bit swamped with stuff coming through my feed I only saw them because they were collected up on the Huffington Post books pages as an actual blog post yeah so just that was interesting because most of these um, lists of advice for writers tend to be blog posts don't they it was nice that this one was the tweet one but it I didn't I didn't spot it well, I didn't. I didn't see it coming through. I don't think I even followed Joyce Carol Oates, or I certainly didn't then. Um, but but the things like BuzzFeed are kind of making um, a fortune, I suspect, out of this this type of blog post where they just collect stuff that other people have put together and present it as one. Um, mm. So it's a very cheap way of um, publishing a blog post for the Huffington for the Huffington Post. Yeah. But the uh, the tweets themselves are interesting, and is it? And you're you're right. It is an, it, it might be worth just before we carry on just talking a little bit about the format. So Joyce Carol Oates, extremely famous, um, well-respected author, has presented, as far as I know, she doesn't make a habit of, um, of, of, of providing writing advice. She doesn't have, for example, a blog or podcast where she um, gives uh, writing advice. Hmm. And she saves it all for 10 tweets, and then the whole thing spreads like wildfire across the internet because, you know, she's Joyce Carol Oates. Yeah. And... Um, and it did, one of the things, it, I mean, most of them are okay, and, and we'll go through them. Some of it you'll have heard before. It's not like they're the most interesting um, pieces of writing advice in the world. I mean, they're interesting, but they're not. it's not kind of like a revelation. Um, and it made me think, well, she kind of, that, that's kind of her contribution to the, I guess, the writing community in a way, and, or, or writing, you know, giving writing advice. I'm sure she contributes in lots of other ways, but you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. And so it means there's a lot of her writing is still entirely private all that kind of thing and then you have people like me on the other end of the scale and people who share much more than me who kind of just put everything out there and mm. i do wonder sometimes if in years to whether i should be more secretive i'm not I'm, I'm, i know they're not going to be it's far too late there's far too many things on the internet that i've said or written um about writing but i do wonder if it sort of if, if that in some way um prevents me having any kind of mystique 
Mystique, yeah. yeah. Like off X-Men. Exactly, like a fact. Or, or the Mystique, the uh, famous um, R&B girl group features <laughs> from the early 2000s, featuring Alicia Dixon, who is now um, a household name on oh. on um, evening television in the UK. Yeah. Um, mm, yes, Mystique. I guess it is a good thing. What's a good thing? It's Mystique. But do you, do, you get what I, do, you, do you get what I mean? It's like, it's George Carlo, it's 10 tweets, bit of writing advice... Everyone loves it. A numpty like me, trying to find my way in the publishing industry, got this novel out, got good reviews, but, you know, still real challenge to actually get it into people's hands because, you know, I'm unknown. So what I do is I spread loads of, ad- loads of advice, writing advice out like it's stinky manure and um, and hope that it attracts some readers and writers and... Spies. <laughs> is that what you're saying? <laughs> and, oh, it's terrible. Yes. But, you know, um, there's, there's a difference. There's a contrast, isn't there, between a well-known author posting a few you know, very succinct, vague writing tips and someone like me who's sh- shared quite a lot of their writing journey in order to try and sell more books, I guess, ultimately, or to a- develop an audience. There is a difference between those two kind of approaches, isn't there? Yes, there is. But I think Joyce Carol Oates, as a, just as one example, is actually a very public person. I mean, she's an extremely prolific tweeter, just not necessarily about writing, but just about life in general and her life. And, you know, she's been lecturing and all that for... God knows how long, and and telling other people or, or imparting her wisdom on the subject. So, I mean, I don't know whether it makes that much of a difference. It probably doesn't. I'm not really sure what I'm getting at. I think I think it's I think it's the. But fact. there are some writers that have a, a fantastic amount of mystique. Like if you take someone like John Banville, you know, I mean, he sits over on the west coast of Ireland, God knows where, writing in some darkened room. You know, it, nobody. It, sorry. No, go on. But doesn't that add to the kind of his his uh, his his novels in some way? If, if that, that's kind of what I mean. So, someone someone like him who is you know he's John Banville, so he can afford to not have this huge public persona because you know he's well respected, well published. Presumably, he does it for a full time job, living. I, I guess he lectures and stuff as well, probably like most most um, well well uh, known authors do. But in some in some way, his secrecy the secrecy of uh, John Banville's sort of private life and. His approach to writing and that kind of thing perhaps adds to his, adds to his novels. So I think what I mean is that because of the lack of mystique that I have, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm sticking with that word. Um, um, d- does that in some way influence my writing? So does people, if people listen to this podcast, think, well, I, I found, you know, I'm going to go and buy Ian's book. Uh, the context of having heard me talk about writing. Having, even having heard me talk about uh, you know my my life in some way, not that I do that too much, does that in some way affect the way that they look at the book? So should I you know should I have more mystique? Is it I don't know where I'm going with this really, but, it, I, no, but I know what it's, it. Do you know what? It's the same kind of thing as like actors and actresses or, who are always in the tabloids, and you know all of their life is spread across everybody's pages. That that sounded like a bad euphemism, but you know what I mean. Compared to people like. Leonardo DiCaprio or someone like that someone you don't know that much about their private life they keep themselves a bit distant and separate and so they they um I think that people respect them a bit more yeah he's a good he's quite a good example because he has obviously he's extremely well known yeah and a lot of people have said actually that I I um, especially sort of Titanic and just after that era that I was I look quite a lot like him <laughs> oh god oh no one said that, by the way. You know, but you know that. No, you know no one said that. <laughs> I don't, honestly. They could have said anything. 
But yeah, I do. I'm, I'm not going to go on about Leonardo DiCaprio because I do like him a lot, and I could talk about him all night. But um, I, didn't I, I know, know that. I know where you. I know where you're going with this, and don't worry because when your second novel is like you know. Uh, the kind of level of a, a Robert Galbraith novel, you can just withdraw from the public spotlight and um, and develop your own mystique. Then it's not too late, Ian. It's not but too late. People will just pile through old podcast episodes like this to dig up dirt on me, and they'll say, "Look, he he wanted mystique on episode eighty something of the Right for Life podcast. <laughs> what an idiot!" Magazine front cover. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Anyway, I'll tell you where I am going with this, and that's um, nowhere. So let's move on. Back to the tweets, eh? Yes. Um, let's right, the tweet. out. That was... Uh, number 10. Number 10. Are we going from 10 to 1? Yeah. I was gonna, that's all I was going to ask. I think that 10 to 1... I mean, that is the textbook way of going through some kind of hit parade, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. So um, write your heart out. Mm. How do you interpret that? Vague, innit? I mean, I'm, I'm, I've now upset myself. I'm just going to be critical of her writing advice. Write your heart <laughs> no, out. No, no, no. But I think it's, I think it's good. Like, I mean, I guess there's so many different ways you can interpret that. But ultimately, it's that you've got to have your heart and soul in it. And when you sit down to write something, even if you're there sweating over the keyboard for for ten hours or whatever on one spell, that's that's a positive thing. Yes, there is, I think there are two main ways of interpreting it. Write your heart out could be just work incredibly hard. Just just write as much as you can, you know, make it your absolute everything, which I guess is pretty reasonable writing advice. The other way that write your heart out could be interpreted is the idea that you need to um, write, um, write uh, from the heart, maybe, or you have to write about something that really means a lot to you, or that you really care about. Um, did, I, did I say that? Are those the two things I said? If they, well, if they were the things you said, I suspect that I said them in a slightly more eloquent way. Oh my god! <laughs> I've got hubris today. I've got a nasty Just rash. Choking back the tears. <laughs> yeah. I definitely didn't say it. I listened back to some um, uh, an episode from a couple of weeks ago, and I I spend a lot of time saying things like I I I and t- um well oh I'm terrible. I don't know why I do podcasts. <laughs> Don't worry, I'm, I'm here to, to support you, Ian. It's good. Let's go on to number nine. It's fine. Yeah, so we we said, observe. Right, right, yeah, write your heart out. We're saying is a, is a good piece of writing advice. Yeah, yeah okay. totally. And then this one is, is something which, when I started writing poetry seriously, I really started to feel like I did about observing and listening to everything a bit more intensely. Um, but she says, as you're like, as if your life depended on it. I like that. You know, like all the details. If you if you hear just like, I don't know whether you do this, Ian, but, but I sometimes write down um, snippets of, of things people have said and Did stuff. You... <laughs> that sounds like I'm, I'm, I'm stalking people, but I'm not. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like conversations on the bus or the train or things yeah. that you, things that, my, well, things that my parents say or my grandparents used to say, I would often write those sorts of things down. Exactly, yeah. Um, but I find that I think my, my, my poetry collection's very rooted in nature and I've definitely started to look around me a lot more and and I'm writing down things like the way that I see things when I see them for the first time I'm I'm writing those kind of things down you know yeah that's interesting because I um Ace Frangelica was uh didn't have a setting as such there was no real description of I mean there was description of the setting but it wasn't in a specific place so I could invent I could entirely invent the the the, the setting yeah. Um, <laughs> excuse me um um 
Whereas the new novel, I'm I'm hoping to set in a very specific place, um, and it's a place that I go to regularly. So I am now trying to take that in and observe and look at it, look at it in a different way. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, good. So that's good advice, isn't it? I think Next. so. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, number eight, don't try to anticipate an ideal reader, or any reader. He slash she might exist, but is reading someone else. I think that's a really a really good one, actually, because when I'm writing, I don't know about you, but when if you've done readings, um, especially, I think this is probably more so with poetry than prose. I'm, well, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but you do get to see the kind of people that are reading poetry and they're interested in poetry and sometimes I do feel that it, there's quite a type to it um I guess depending on whether it's performance poetry or or kind of you know written down on paper um so I can't help sometimes thinking oh you know I would like this to appeal to obviously I'd like this to appeal to poetry editors and journals and stuff like that as well maybe that's terrible maybe that's oh no no, I would say that's a, uh, I say that's a very good idea. I mean, I, I tried to, and I, st- I still try to just write something. I like to think my ideal reader is is me because I want to enjoy my own book. If that makes sense, I, would, I, I wanted to write a book, and I want to write books that I want to read. So I, don't, I think it's you know it's and, and and if you have that in mind, then I think it helps. So, for example, I don't particularly like or read thrillers or crime novels necessarily not you know those kind of page turner in inverted commas type novels Mm. therefore um, my ideal reader isn't someone who reads those novels um, and I wouldn't write those types of novels because it's not something I'm particularly interested in so when I'm thinking about what I write I don't think or ideally I don't know ideally I would want to (laughs) ideally I would want to have someone um, who's interested in that type of thing? I want them to be interested in the sort of thing that I'm interested in. Mm. If that but makes what sense. about, like, say, for example, John Bamville? Would you like John Bamville to like your books? Um, well, I'd like anyone to like my books, but I, I, I'm not going to. I wouldn't change the what the way I write in order to try and bag John Bamville if he wasn't if he just wasn't into what I write. If that mm. makes sense. Mm, yeah, it does. But I mean, just because you know he's as a critic and stuff like that as well, I guess it's difficult um, to put out, the, uh, you know, from your head, the idea that your work is going to be judged when it's out there, if you are serious about being published. Well, I just see it. Yeah, no, you, you're, you're right, it is. It is, it is <laughs> We're talking at the same time now, all of a sudden. <clears throat> I know, I'm sorry. I've also got a tickly cough. I don't know if you've noticed. <laughs> no. It's no. awful. I feel like I'm... Sorry. <laughs> We are talking over each other quite a lot. I think it's we're out of practice. Yeah. And I'm a bit rude. (laughs) It's just one of those nights, eh? Indeed. Um, Okay, so we we shouldn't be trying to write for anybody, though. I don't think so, because you can't please everyone. No. Therefore, try and write... uh, My only only addition to her very brief advice is um, if there is an ideal reader, then it should be yourself, because ultimately you want to like your own work. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay, number seven is be your own editor, critic, sympathetic but merciless. And when I, because I've obviously been writing poetry for a long time, um, 
But I think that it was only in the last few years that I got quite serious about it. And I realised it was when I started to properly edit my poems. Because before that, I used to write stuff and I used to be like, oh, yeah, I've just written this poem and it's finished now and it's a poem. And I just, you know, put it away on the shop. That's it. Um, and never look at it or never think that it would require any amount of changing or tweaking or improving. Um, and as soon as I realised that that was absolutely vital, I think my poetry really changed. And I'm embarrassed to look back at stuff I wrote before that. Absolutely embarrassed. Yeah, I'm I'm very much the same. I, I, I've spoken about this before, how it was only when I became uh, in... Um, I became a, what do you call it, a publications <laughs> assistant or something like that in as my day job where I had to cut 100 words down to 50 words of fairly boring copy. And um, it was only when I was editing that that I was able to transfer those skills over to my fiction and I realised how important the editing was, by far the most important part, really, of the entire process. Yeah. And um, I think there is a bit of a light bulb moment for most writers it's it's that it, that is the point from which where they go from being you know possibly good to great or from average to good you know that you there's a definite step up and mm-hmm. it usually comes when you go oh okay i need to spend more time on this actually editing it cutting things out being sympathetic but merciless as joyce carol Oates says here mm. and you know when you do creative writing workshops and stuff like that i mean we uh, when i was working at the irish writer center um we I was looking around for different writers and other people were um, getting writers to come in to do creative writing workshops. The only criteria back then was that they were published. Um, well, obviously, it helped if they, if they had experience at, at teaching creative writing. But it's just interesting to me that experience, like in writing, is a very different thing to experience in, in editing. And to be able to sit down with a group of people and to help them edit their own work... Mm. That's, that seems like something very different like would you ever, I mean in terms of teaching other people about creative writing do you think that there's a big step between being a published writer and being able to lead like a creative writing workshop well I've had a number of uh, creative writing tutors and most have been good a couple have been fantastic but they've almost all had entirely different approaches yeah. um, um, Simon Crump who was my tutor for my novel and who really um, made me feel like I was about to write a novel that was potentially going to get published to, you know, I'm very grateful for, to him for that too um, yeah. he was fantastic and very hands on and so he would actually um, you know he, he edited basically some, some of the early stuff and, and, and helped show me and seeing someone with some experience um, um, seeing how they did it was really helpful on the other hand um, one of my tutors was uh, E.A. Markham, Archie Markham who um, sadly has passed away, but a brilliant um, Caribbean writer, author, and um, with a very kind of dry sense of humour. He spoke very slowly and in this kind of slightly unusual accent, but very well-spoken sort of unusual accent. And he just used to sit in front of us for an hour and pretty much talk. And you wouldn't get many notes back, but you would get an hour's one-on-one conversation with him. And most of the time you'd be trying to keep up with him and understand exactly what it was he was talking about and then I found that it was weeks later that I really I kind of thought oh that, maybe that's what he was talking about so an oh. entirely different approach yeah totally I've had some some absolutely amazing uh poets just just like very interesting perspectives on 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 writing and on poetry 
Katrina O'Reilly is a really good one. She was she used to be the editor of Poetry Island Review. She's got a couple of collections out. She was fantastic because she was somebody who had studied poetry as well, and you felt like she was coming from a perspective of that she knew the history of it as well, not just you know that that she could look at, at her own work and your work and and kind of contemporary scene and everything, but just that she was drawing on all this history of poetry. Yeah. And I really respect that because I'm not somebody who studied it, you know. Mm, no, I, I I completely understand that. That there is, there is. Um, my approach to having creative writing tutors was always, if they've had a couple of books published, if they know what they're talking about, and you know quite quickly that they do, then why would I not listen to their editorial suggestions? At the very least, I owe the, I owe it to myself to listen to to them. So yes. Yeah, totally. Good. We better crack so, on. Yeah. Six, unless you are experimenting with form, gnarled, snarled and obscure, be alert for possibilities of paragraphing. What does she mean? (laughs) Do you think that's a joke that she's just saying to people you should use paragraphs more? I think she's probably saying to people, isn't she, that you you could be more succinct or break your writing up because... Going off on one can sometimes be difficult for people to follow. What was it? What's the book I I started? Um, Tale of Two Cities, Charles Dickens, with that famous, you know, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. That first uh, paragraph, which is about three pages long or something, have you read it? I've not read it. So I have only read one Charles Dickens book, and that is Dombey and Son. That's what? Dombey and Son. I think you just made that up. No, it's one of his uh, novels. It's about 900 and something pages long, and I read every damn one of them. Oh, good on you. Well, I, I read this first paragraph of this of, of uh, Tale of Two Cities, and I, I, I was completely lost when he started talking about chickens as well, in the middle of it. Um, so, yeah, I guess she's just saying, you know, you've got to also just look, make, make sure that stuff is, is readable. Yeah, I think she. I think that is what she's saying. It's kind of. It's. It's not. It's. Yeah. Unless you're experimenting with form, be a little possibility of paragraphing. I think it's just saying just write well, almost. Yeah. 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 Sorted. Number five. five. When in doubt. Oh yeah, this was what she said. Raymond Chandler had said. Uh, when in doubt on how to end a chapter, bringing a man with a gun. But she doesn't recommend it. But she just thought that was an interesting piece of advice. Oh, I think that's a good piece of advice. And I think I, not necessarily the man with the gun, but the thing that made me want to write was reading Margaret Atwood's Cat's Eye, and she is brilliant, Margaret Atwood. At, oh yeah. At closing chapters. And just even closing sections of chapters as well. I really remember that from Cat's Eye, just leaving you hanging on the last sentence of a of a. You know, and then you, you you skip to the next kind of section of the chapter, even. Yeah, breath, like, breathtaking sentences, just absolutely beautiful yeah. sentences that take you by surprise. And they're not like they aren't men with gun, men with guns going into rooms. They can be really subtle things, but yeah. they, they just they just jolt you. I totally agree. Yeah, yeah, and it's funny because uh, one of my friends, I it's amazing. I have a pen pal from when I was nine years old and we're still in contact and she's great and she's, she writes as well and she's American and she said that recently that she just thought that Margaret Atwood was just, you know, she just couldn't get her writing at all and I was thinking about it but Cat's Eye, I just, yeah, it's a fantastic piece of writing. It's one of my favourite books. Yeah, it's great. Awesome. Well, um... Four. Four. Keep in mind, Oscar Wilde, a little sincerity is a dangerous thing and a great deal of it is absolutely fatal. Well, there you go, Ian. This is about... Well, maybe it's not about that. Oh, no. I was thinking about saying too much. 
what you were saying about earlier. Well, I think um, it, maybe, probably not. I'm not sure. Oh, here we go again. Stop it. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I I, I thought it was about um, um, a little sincerity is a dangerous thing. It's the idea of not taking yourself too seriously. And this is a very why it's, why she says this. I think, and why it's a piece of advice for writers is because so many writers take themselves very seriously, and they they think that they they write they write stuff which is incredibly sincere <laughs> to the point where it's you know it's ridiculous where they think they're writing the most serious, most important book that's ever been written. And, you know, they're probably not. Um, so I think the idea is to, to, I think it's about humility, that quote. Hmm. Well, I'm, I would like to look into that one a bit more because I am intrigued about what he was really talking about. Well, I'd, I'd, let's find out and then we'll, we'll cover it next week. All right. Good. Um, three, you're writing for your contemporaries, not for posterity. If you are lucky, your contemporaries will become posterity. With a capital P. Yeah. What do you think? What do you think she means there? Well, I mean, I guess it's like you're not trying to write to be famous and be remembered forever, and to fit into the great canon of of literature, or, or the many canons. I guess there are lots of canons. Um, that you are just you. You are here and now, and that is what you are writing in. Yeah, and I think that's yeah. I think that sounds like a pretty sensible thing to say. I mean, I have talked before about, especially this canon idea about having some idea of where your uh, where your work sits in the in the canon. So, mm-hmm. um, being aware that the type of fiction you write, your style, perhaps, or that kind of thing, that there is a lineage, and being aware of authors that, that have gone before who have kind of maybe set the. Um, or what's the phrase blazed blazed a trail for you to enter but mm-hmm. I always talk about having that in mind when you're writing now so when I, it's kind of being aware of your of, of of other people who write a bit like you um, or who are your contemporaries now um, so so I think I think I think I have agreed with that in the past and I uh, I certainly agree with it now yeah yeah definitely I mean we are whatever else we are, no matter how original we are or unique, we are all influenced by the same kind of things around us, aren't we? We're all existing in the same world at the moment. That's true enough. Taking those things into account. Um, next week, Ian, just before I forget, I would like to talk to you about historical fiction. Can you not let me forget that? I won't let you forget that. I'll, right. never, I'll never let you forget that. <laughs> cool. Um, number two, the first sentence can be written only after the last sentence has been written. First drafts are hell, final drafts, paradise. That seems like two bits of advice to me. It does, doesn't it? Yes. But um, did you write your last sentence before you wrote your first one? Um, no, I didn't. My first sentence came pretty early on. In fact, my entire first chapter, which is quite short, it's a single page, was fairly untouched from its first, my first attempt at it many years ago. But my last sentence also is a kind of... Hmm, I should know this. I think it's a, it's a repetition of a line that's actually in the first chapter. So, so the answer is kind of. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, George R. R. Martin, writer of the... Um, uh, what, Game of Thrones? It's not called Game of Thrones, though, is it? When Song it's of Ice and Fire. Song of Ice and Fire. I'm reading it. Are you? I'm reading it right now. 
Is it is it amazing? Um, no, it's not. It's not amazing. <laughs> it's not amazing, but it's. I mean, it's. I get it. I mean, we've talked before about um, um, about Game of Thrones the TV program and oh. um, and and stuff, but it, it it's it's good. I've read about 150 pages of the first book, and it's surprisingly. Um, similar to the TV show, as you might expect, I suppose. But you know, quite often things change. But it's actually I very true to it. Later, yeah, a little bit. But oh well, it's yeah. good. It's a rollicking read. Yeah, I mean, it's, I did, in terms of the the storylines and the characters, I mean, yeah, I can imagine. Um, but he said, coming back to him, he that he has always known how it's going to end. I guess that's one of the most important things, isn't it? When you're when you set out on a book, do you think you could set out on a book if you didn't know where it was going to end? I guess you could. I've already done it, and um, I've already done it. <laughs> Ace Frangelica, I had no idea how it was going to end when I started writing. I had no idea how it was going to end when I was about three quarters of the way through. And the ending that I chose, I actually then completely rewrote before I got a publishing contract. Oh, well, there you go. So, um, so yeah, I'm not convinced about this piece of advice. No. But first, yeah. first drafts are hell. Which we uh, final drafts paradise. I agree with that. Yeah, yeah. I just, um, I just signed off on my my book has now gone to print, and that was just so joyous. Just being like, oh yes, yes, done. it is amazing. <laughs> um, and then number one was just write your heart out again. We've already covered that. So that's it. That's uh, that's all, all ten of them. And I think I deserve a medal for for reading or going through all of these. <laughs> whilst having a picture up in the corner of the Huffington Post of a 13-pound baby. <laughs> Have you been looking at that too? I was actually looking a little bit further down where it says, watch porn versus real sex. <laughs> oh, God, that baby. looks like a sumo wrestler. Anyway, yeah, they're good. that's good. So we, we are a bit clearer about what we're going to do with our next bits of writing, aren't we? We are. There's, there's, it's all good writing advice, and I think it's um, though they are a little vague. I think generally they are pretty interesting piece of advice. What we're not going to have time to do is talk about the four worst pieces of advice for young writers. Um, yeah, but, um, yeah, but um, you know, there is so much writing advice out there that you can. Um, I'm sure you can find it yourselves, listeners. Yeah. yeah. Um, all right, that's it. Nice to have you back. Sorry, I was rude to you. It's <laughs> all right. I'm used to it now. That's true. And, but um, uh, yeah, nice to be back. Mm, lovely to have you. Mm. Where can people find you on the worldwide internet? Um, they can find me on Twitter, uh, Don underscore S underscore Sorensen. And I, I say it every time I'm going to change that. I, I don't know what to, something catchy like Don, poet, man. How about Donson? No, no, that because that would Dimson. just be all right. <laughs> The dim sum poet. That'll do. Maybe, yeah, we'll consider that. Um, have you got an internet website yet? Oh, no, not yet, but I will have. Fine. I will have. You know, that is, do you know something? It's so simple setting up a website, isn't it? But finding the right theme is just a nightmare. So I'm just faffing around with that. So that's that's the short story of the long, torturous journey to my website. It's a, it's a labyrinth and a rabbit hole trying to... Uh decide how you want your website to look when you have lots of choices yeah Oof, yeah overloaded indeed right uh people can find me on the internet too at ianbroom.com if you want the podcast you can find all the previous episode previous episodes at ianbroom.com slash podcast or you can find me on twitter at ianbroom i-a-i-n 
B-R-O-O-M-E. Let us know any thoughts you have on anything that we've said in the last half an hour or so. Great, yeah, cool. Well, I'll see you next week. Will do. Farewell. Bye.